Welcome to episode 143 of We Don't Die Radio, where my goal is to give you evidence that although our bodies will disappear, we survive physical death. I'm your host, Sandra Champlain, author of the best-selling book called We Don't Die, A Skeptic's Discovery of Life After Death. And before we start the show, I'd like you to imagine something. Imagine that you're sitting in a big audience and everyone around you is interested in life after death. And you see a few dozen people come to the stage and each one of them brings cutting edge information about the afterlife and how you can get reconnected to your loved one. How does that sound? I think it sounds pretty good. And such an event actually exists. I want to invite you. I am one of the speakers at the Afterlife Research and Education Symposium, which is held this September in 2017, September 15th through 17th at the Embassy Suites in Scottsdale, Arizona. So I'd love to meet you face to face. And I think it's going to be a great time and filled with great information. So you can go to afterlifestudies.org to find out more and to register. Now, speaking about afterlife communication, I'm thrilled to introduce you to our guest today. His name is Bill Guggenheim, and his name might be quite familiar to you, same as his book, which he co-wrote with his former wife, Judy, called Hello from Heaven. It's been sitting on my bookshelf and one of my favorites since I started my afterlife research back in, my research started in the late 90s. This book, Hello from Heaven, has been translated into 18 languages and continues to be a bestseller. Bill is a pioneer in the field of after-death communication experiences. Now, after-death communication is also called ADC. He is considered to be the father of ADC research and has written and spoken on this subject for more than 27 years. Bill has been presenting ADC workshops at conferences, bereavement support groups, hospices, churches, colleges, and many other places. His ADC research and Hello from Heaven have been featured on numerous radio and television shows, including ABC's show 2020. So without further ado, I'd like to say, Bill Guggenheim, welcome to We Don't Die Radio. I'm delighted to be here. Delighted to have you. Really, really thank you. And thank you most of all for all the years and all the work you and Judy have done to make such a difference with so many people. It uh, was seven years of uh, research and writing, which I never anticipated because if I had, I think I would have bailed out in about six months into it. Wow. Well, tell us about how it all started. I mean, what's your background about? In Tell us your background, is well, what I'm trying to say. My background, uh, I'm from Long Island, Manhattan, New York in New York City and New Jersey, mm-hmm. and uh, grew up there and went to school there, uh, Yale, Yale University, things like that. But mainly, I was a stockbroker and a securities analyst, literally on Wall Street. I worked for two small firms, which has nothing to do with this, but uh, no. that's uh, my orientation. I inherited money when I was 21, I wanted to learn how to manage it. That's right. why I studied a whole bunch of courses and eventually worked in the field. But uh, Judy and I, uh, moved to Florida. We had one son at that time, and I had a spiritual awakening in 1974 that uh, led me to attend a five-day workshop with somebody very, very famous. That's uh, Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. Wow. Who wrote, who, and she wrote all the books, the early books on uh, death and dying. Yes. And this workshop was uh, held in 1977. 
And uh, it was just a, a series of coincidences. Uh, if there are such things, there, are, there really aren't. But uh, I happened to be watching her on the Phil Donahue show one, one day. Judy called me in to see her. And I had heard her name, but I didn't know who she was. And uh, I watched for an hour, and she really spoke about near-death experiences, which I was a bit familiar with. I had read Raymond Moody's book, Life After Life which was published in 1975. Mm -hmm. And I uh, knew some people involved with that research and things like that. But um, I didn't, you know, this didn't change my life or anything at all. I just watched it. And then coincidentally, the same show came on another cable channel when we were living in Sarasota uh, two weeks later. And in that show, it had her name and mailing address below. So feeling kind of magnanimous at the moment, I wrote a check to support her work. Great to check, $25. Mm-hmm. What you might do if the Brownie Scouts came around or the fire department or any other, you know, house-to-house charity call kind of thing. And I thought that's, you know, I did my good deed for the day and that would be the end of it. But as it turned out, Elizabeth wrote back to me, sent me a, a number of audio cassette tapes called Lessons from the Dying Patient and invited me to attend a five-day workshop with her. And I didn't know anything about it. So I waited up to the last day before registration. And I felt, well, if I went, then probably a doctor or a nurse or a social worker or, you know, somebody in the medical profession would not be able to attend if I went. So I called her office in uh, Illinois to speak to her secretary, uh, I thought. And I was going to apologize and say very much, thank you very much for inviting me, but really you know, give my seat away. Don't hold a place for me for somebody who could make a bigger difference in the field of death and dying. And however, that particular day it was snowing in Illinois and Elizabeth answered her own phone and I recognized her voice immediately. So putting this into context, imagine calling some movie star or somebody like that. And, and, you know, Jennifer Aniston and you get her right on the phone. Right. It's her. It's not, you know, uh, a machine or, uh, you know, Somebody else that works there, but it was Elizabeth. So I went through my little routine about thank you for inviting me, but, and she listened patiently, and then she simply said, Bill, in her German Swiss accent, Bill, I think you should be there. <laughs> and I, I just point out, I guess I'm a pushover for dominant women, because I said, Well, Elizabeth, if you think so, I will. And uh, six months later, sure enough, I was there for five days. It was not, the workshop was not about death and dying. It was about life and living and people uh, releasing their grief, their pain, their sorrow, all kinds of things, not just uh, death, but having been abused, having been this, that, or the other throughout life, you know, all the different uh, human emotions. And we bonded so much that by the end of the workshop, we all wanted to just call our immediate uh, family members and friends, and go off to an island together, and never go back to reality. Oh, wow! Because it was so, it was so incredibly loving. I've never experienced in a group the the love we shared in those few days, and which built, built, built throughout the workshop. Terrific. However, um, uh, the big point is that on that uh, Thursday evening, she flew Raymond Moody down from Virginia to Florida, where the workshop was, to uh, speak to us, and he spoke about his near-death experience research and whatnot in his book. And a couple of people, or three people, talked about they had had one of those. And then it went into another direction where a woman claimed that her daughter had been hit and killed by a, um, a driver of a car 
accidentally when the daughter was out walking with a friend. So both these two teenage girls were killed. And her, she had what she called a dream in which she saw her daughter and conversed with her. And the dream was very, very healing. It had, it had occurred about a year before, and this woman was a nurse herself, and she accepted it fully as being authentic and real and an actual contact from her daughter. And uh, then she went on to say how her son had seen his sister doing while well, he was doing his homework one evening, which scared him. And he went r- running into the living room and saying, Kathy's there, Kathy's there. And he described what she was wearing and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And I had never heard of anything like this before, ever. It just, anyone who had died was, my phrase was, when you're dead, you're dead. You know, and uh, the, the body is like a flashlight battery. When the juice runs out, you throw it away. Wow. And those were my views. So I was not, I was a very skeptical about this. And uh, I thought it was very nice that the mother had a dream, but when she called it a dream, I dismissed that as being not real. And when the boy gave his account of seeing his sister, I figured teenage boy, little marijuana, who knows what, you know, probably a drug reaction. And uh, threw that one away. But then Elizabeth went on to narrate a story in which a patient of hers had died 10 months earlier came back to Elizabeth and uh, made her make a, made a, uh, made Elizabeth make a promise that she would not quit her work because there was a great deal of pressure on Elizabeth at that point of opposition by the medical community to stop doing what she was doing, even though she worked in a hospital and everything. And she was a full fledged American psychiatrist at that point, although her background was from Switzerland. And, uh, when finished, when Elizabeth finished her long story, which is in our books, I'm not going to go through it. Uh, you could literally hear a pin drop. Uh, it would have sounded like a crowbar <laughs> uh, falling on a concrete floor or something. It was so dramatic. And so I went home with the idea, well, if it happened to one person, Elizabeth Kula-Ross, who had everything to lose and nothing to gain by telling this experience, mm-hmm. I felt, uh, maybe it's happened to some other people. Now, in back then in 1977, 78, late 70s, throughout the 80s, there was no internet or anything like it. It was the interlibrary loan system. So I was able to get books from anywhere in the country that I could locate or, you know, a title of it, an author or whatever. And so I would get a book here and a book there and there'd be one account or two accounts or maybe three of something like this. And one had a whole chapter on it, you know. Out of all the books that had ever been written, one had a chapter. And I was curious, and I didn't know what to do about it, but I went to Raymond Moody, who I had gotten to know myself, again, the father of near-death experience yes. research. And I asked, I figured, if he wrote the book, it would get attention. And while Raymond never said no, he never said yes, and he kept postponing me for years. Because, And I even found a man who he worked with up in Georgia, it would find people to interview. So the three of us would work together, but it never happened. And I finally uh, had an experience of hearing a voice in my own head say, do your own research, write your own book. It's your spiritual work to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it was back on me. And I didn't know, I mean, I could figure out what to do, yes, but I had never done it. And that was very simply, find people who had had some kind of experience of being contacted by a loved one who would die and interview them. That was my methodology, very simple. And uh, I called my former wife to come over. And we were, had been married 17 years. We were divorced for four years. But I had shared all my information and interest in this with her before we were 
divorced and even afterwards. And so she did it. Even that day when she was there for an hour, we got a phone call from somebody telling us about an account uh, of this woman's aunt seeing a friend of hers who had died and uh, having the experience before she was even informed that the friend had died. Wow. That was at least evidential. Sure. That's what I really wanted to supply and something which could convince me that these weren't just imagination or wishful thinking right. or, you know, uh, bereaved desire of the bereaved, that kind of thing. And uh, long story short, in our book, we did have six chapters of why are these real? And I'll go through that later, but it uh, provides evidence within the experience, not just reading it, but the content of it, uh, what they, how they learn, what they learn and whatnot, that uh, they learned something they didn't know before or before they were told a loved one had died, things like that. So with that, I plunged ahead. My job was to find 10 people a week here in Orlando, Florida, and I did, to, who would claim to have such an experience. And I, cause I didn't know if we'd find 50 people in a year or 100 in a year. Mm-hmm. Long story short, we interviewed 500 people the very first year. Wow. And uh, that led to being in contact with various bereavement organizations, asking them to help us by providing people who, had, who were grieving the death of a loved one, especially bereaved parents. Mm-hmm. And uh, we gave our first lecture, workshop, whatever you want to call it, one year after we began our research, which we began in 1988 through 1990. Five, but 1989, we gave our first workshop with over 300 people in it, all bereaved parents. Wow. And a second one the same day with more than 200 bereaved parents in it. And because another little coincidence, I had met a woman who was a reporter for the St. Petersburg Times. She was there, and she brought a cameraman. So we had a wonderful, beautiful article over in the St. Petersburg newspaper that was written with a color photograph. And we use that uh, as evidence that our research was real and honest yes. and straightforward. And we use that throughout the rest of our six years of research. Uh, whenever we contacted anybody, uh, individuals or, or, or organizations. So we had, and there were other stories in other newspapers, including the Orlando Sentinel had two in there. So we got a great deal of publicity before our book was ever, ever published. Fantastic. And, we just kept going and going and going. We kept hearing of more and more experiences, so we didn't stop. And we wound up interviewing 2,000 people in all 50 American states and all 10 Canadian provinces. And uh, all back, you know, all backgrounds, all interests, all different relationships, everything. And that's in the book. And Hello from Heaven contains 353 firsthand accounts that uh, we put in the book that were all representative of all the others we we heard. And, How did you pick uh, the 353 out of 2,000? Uh, wow. Basically, they fall into categories. We okay. found 12, sounds like the Zodiac, the 12 categories. Uh-huh. Actually, there are one or two more now, but then there were 12. Uh, they, they just fell into ones such as feeling or sensing the presence or hearing a voice or feeling a touch, a tactile touch, a pat, a tap, a caress, a kiss, something like that, or smelling a fragrance of some kind, or actually seeing them, on and on and on. They, they fall into patterns of types of experiences, and within those, we found the ones that were the clearest and easiest to understand, 
and uh, best told, frankly, verbally, mm-hmm. and that edited down to a reasonable amount of space in a book. And yes, it was a lot of hard choices, but uh, we had to, you know, not have a thousand-page book because we knew nobody would read that. No, I love how your passion brought you through this, and then even hearing all the stories, you start realizing, hey, these fall into different categories. You yeah, know? well, again, it was just organizing. It was, as a stock uh, market analyst, you look for trends, you look for, you know, certain, you look for patterns, and there were patterns to these. And there are patterns all, all throughout life, in, within nature, within everything, within music, within movies, everything. You look for patterns, that's all. And we found patterns very easily, very quickly. Anybody can do that. And many other books have been written since then, have, which have done the same thing. Hmm. What are some of these 12, if you don't mind? Because uh, well, that's, that's, yeah. that's what I was saying. Hearing a voice mm-hmm. or sensing a presence or feeling a touch, these types of things. We go on to later uh, into, of course, we people call them dreams. We call them sleep state ADCs because they're very common. But they're not, a, people will tell, go through a whole experience, they use the word dream, 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 but then they'll finish by saying, but it was unlike any other dream I ever had. Because it was, they saw the person, they communicated usually, They it was detailed, it was personal, it was comforting, uplifting, and even other people in their dreams, there were a group of people, didn't see that person, only they did. And so there were unique little twists and turns within many of these. Bill, do you have any... Them... Sorry to interrupt you. Go ahead, sure. <laughs> do you have any stories of ADCs that continue to just, like when you think about them, you know, back in the day when you heard them, you just like, there's... No doubt, this is reality. Any stories you could share with us? Well, a I, of them? the best one, well, the, best, the easiest one is the one I had, um, and that was before I, we ever began the research. Judy and I were uh, owned a home in Longwood, Florida, which is a suburb of Orlando. And one Sunday afternoon, we had a, a talk. We were in our living room, which is in the front of the house, and we had gotten up each to go on and do whatever it was. Uh, the rest of that Sunday, and I heard a thought in my mind very clearly. It said, go outside and check the swimming pool. It's very common in Florida for people to have screened-in pools. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to be a millionaire or anything like it. I mean, you look from the air, it's hard to find in some areas and some suburban areas, houses that don't have pools. Right. That's how common they are. So we had a, an average size screened-in pool. And so I walked from the front of the house to the rear, and which had sliding glass doors. And uh, between us and the pool, we had about 15 feet away, there was a wrought iron fence, and the gate had been left open. And we had three sons at that point. And two of the, two of the older ones used to use that as a shortcut to go to the backyard. So from the back door, through the gate to the pool, and around the pool to another door outside the pool. And so I went to close the gate, and as I did, I happened to look down at the deep end of the pool, and there, our youngest son, Jonathan, was floating and not moving at all in the deep end. And I didn't know if he was dead or alive. Wow. He was only less than two years old. He didn't know how to swim. And I tore off from where I was from the deep end of the pool down to the other end 
the other the other way around, whatever. I tore off to the other end of the pool. And for some reason, I stood there just for a moment to take my shoes off. I don't know where I used to be a volunteer fireman. And I learned that before you go into water, you take your shoes off. Okay. So I ripped them off. And I just before I jumped in the water, Jonathan was floating face upwards. His arms were akimbo and spread out with his legs. His eyes were open and he wasn't moving. But he had almost like a small smile on his face in my memory. And so I jumped in the water. I came up under him, pushed him to the side. And while I'd been running down the side, I yelled out, Judy. I screeched out, Judy. And she came running immediately. And she literally pulled him out. I pushed him and she pulled him. We both got out. It was May. The water was still cold. I was shivering a bit. We didn't know what yet. And within a few seconds, he spit up water and he was fine. He did not even require CPR. That's how quickly this had occurred. Thank goodness. And if I had not been alerted with the words, go outside and check the swing pool. And then in a chapter where people's lives are saved by these experiences, this is just one. Other people are saved by their experiences. <coughs> and But it's always indirectly. It never says... Uh, there's a stop. There's an accident. You're, you know, you're going to, you're going to be in an accident or stop. You'll be killed. Stop. You'll be, it's always indirect. It will say, slow your car down or stop your car now, but it doesn't explain why. And then you, for instance, uh, another time, this has nothing to do with an after death communication, but, um, when Judy and I were separated and divorcing, I was depressed one day and I was just sitting at a red light which was a four-way intersection, and when the light changed green, rather than moving ahead immediately, which kept, you know, most of us do, I just, because I was depressed, I was slow, And but a tractor trailer went from my right to my left and would have broadsided me at full speed. He just never saw the light. He didn't slow down. He didn't speed up. He just never saw it. And that happens, you know, everywhere. Sure. People don't see traffic lights. And so that was just a, an emotional thing, but this was a verbal thing of hearing, receiving a message to check the pool. And other people in, in Hello from Heaven have received messages to look out and check the barn. In, the, in that case, the barn was on fire and would have spread to the house. Or me, uh, don't get a, don't board that airplane. And then later on, the plane crashes. Wow. They don't. They're not. They're not told the plane will crash. Don't get on. Just don't get on that plane. So if you if your listeners don't believe a word I say, that's up to them at all. But if you ever ever receive information about slow down now, or stop your car now, or anything like that, please be good about it and listen to that voice and heed it, because it will probably save your life, uh, or at least prevent you from having a serious accident. Hmm. Oh, I studied um, years ago with uh, Doreen Virtue, who's known to many yes. as Angel Lady and everything. And in her story, it, she had said that she had gotten a premonition of a carjacking and, and exactly was given detailed of what to do and what not to do. And she was psychologist, I think, but she just blew it off that it had to be a figment of her imagination and um, didn't listen. And of course, it all happened just the way she saw. And from yes. that point forward, she started listening. <laughs> yes, 
Yes. Very interesting. So let's talk about a few other of these kinds of um, after-death communications, because I think we can have them and not realize we're having them. Like, for instance, um, smelling my grandmother's uh, perfume or something like that. You know, that could be a very real communication, couldn't it? It, it, It's a whole chapter in Hello from Heaven about that. Uh, You can smell a perfume, a cologne, favorite food, a favorite uh, beverage, uh, could be a sachet was reported, uh, a, the scent of a baby can be reported, um, anything to do with smelling something like that, and which makes them the most interesting in a way because this is a category of all the types of experiences that other people can share and do share easily. So let's pretend... Um, you're calling me from northern Minnesota in the middle of a blizzard. Okay. Snow, out, snow outside, no flowers anywhere, no, and you're working in an office in a big building, in a cubicle or whatever, and there's no flowers and there's no cologne, there's no perfume of anything, and all of a sudden you start smelling lilacs, which may not even be a, na- a flower native to there. I don't know, but you smell lilacs. And lilacs remind you, that was, you say, your mother's favorite flower when mm-hmm. she was alive. And this, you just feel surrounded by lilacs and uplifted and you feel a warm hug from your mother emotionally. And you say, thank you, mom, or whatever. And somebody comes along and they go, sniff, sniff. Hmm, what's that smell? What is it? Oh, oh yes, it's flowers. Oh, it's lilacs. And they'll smell it. And a third person will come along. And a fourth and a fifth. So these, and we have one in which 11, excuse me, plus a mother, 12 people all smell the same roses when there are no roses there. Wow. So that's evidential when it's two or more people at the same time in the same place sharing the same experience. Pretty cool. Again, with no words involved, without anybody saying, oh, do you smell that? Not prompting them or eliciting, oh, yes, yes, you know, causing them to say yes, but they on their own noticing it and commenting on it. Wow. Can we talk about telephone calls? Um, I just want to share something that one of the listeners told me, that her dad had a close friend who had passed away. And I don't know how long it was after the the guy had passed away, but uh, this gentleman's cell phone rang that it was from the guy who died. And of course, he couldn't have dialed it because you know he was gone so he the fella just assumed that well somebody else must have gotten the number or something like that so he dialed the number back and the number had been disconnected yes 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 this was just coming in as we were finishing our research or we would have had more on that regarding cell phones pagers and computers and people have received messages on their computers this is not an email from us, you know, us, somebody trying to make them feel good or somebody trying to spoof them. This is just a little message for them on a computer or um, hearing. You know, that's the extreme. I should go back to where we were about telephone calls. It's not uncommon. It's not the most common, but it's the smallest category. But one man wrote a whole book on it called Phone Calls from the Dead. Wow. He was a parapsychologist. And... Uh, I read his book long, many years ago. Which, um, well, what it is is imagine you're okay. Two two forms. One is when you're asleep. Now maybe you can accept it more easily that you're sleeping, and the phone rings that you hear in your head, and you pick it up, and it's your aunt or your parent or your child or whatever it is. You can accept that more readily than actually seeing them in person or you know 
during a so-called dream sleep state ADC or whatever. And you have a two-way conversation with them by telephone and hang up and that's that. Okay. But what about when you're wide awake? Let's say you're in the kitchen, you're cooking or cleaning up or some other room of the house doing whatever you're doing. Doesn't matter wherever you are, it could be a business even. And the phone rings, you pick it up, and it's the voice of your loved one who died. And they communicate to you, they speak to you. And you can have one way or two way communication with them during this type or other types of experiences as well. Mm-hmm. But two, one or two way communication. And generally, their voice then begins to fade away. And that's the end of it. But there's never a hang up or a disconnect sound or dial tone. It just fades away. And in some cases, um, there can be, on like on a cell phone, there can, you can show the, the, the phone number, but if you dial it, it's not dialed or whatever. But uh, we have the whole chapter in the book on phone calls. Yes. What's the most common kind of ADC? The most common one is perhaps not the most uh, Interesting because it's the, the hardest to imagine unless you've already felt it, but it's called feeling or sensing the presence. You just feel the person is around you or near you in your vicinity. And many people can point to where in the room, like over to my left or to my right or behind me, and they can report a change in temperature sometimes, occasionally. Um, the temperature may rise or, or decline, sometimes drastically. Or... Uh, and they will also know when that's no longer there, when the person is left. But they'll say, oh, that's Aunt Mary who just died, or that's who, so, so and so. It's usually somebody who's not quite as close to them. Uh, and they say, well, I'm just, you know, I'm upset because I'm thinking about him or something like that. So that's why I imagined it. But really, they are feeling it. They know it. But because in our culture, uh, we discard so many things like that as not real, they throw it away. In other cases, uh, it's maybe their deceased husband or wife or child. Those can go on for months and even years. And what we say very simply, it's not that they just want you to feel their presence. They're not just letting you know they're there. They w- There's something you can do right here, right now, when you have that occur. And that is sit down, relax, relax your body as much as you can, close your eyes, Take a few deep breaths, just like you're on after meditation, mm-hmm. and open your mind and ask to receive a message. At first, your you know your mind's just turning away, like usual mind chatter. But you should, in time, receive a message from them because they want to communicate with you. They sure. want more than to just give you a, 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 a fragrance for you to smell or a touch or things like that. They want to communicate something verbal. And we, there's a whole list of those I'll be happy to get into in a minute. Sure. But uh, f- feeling the presence is the most common. And uh, I would say the sleep state, so-called dream, is the second most common. And people, it's so, here's my analogy, because I do and I have a lot of time in a workshop. How hard is it to get hold of somebody today? You call them on the phone, you get voicemail. Right. You have to send them an email. You may or may not get back. They may or may not get back to you for a day or two. You call on and on and on, all these different ways. And yet we're further apart. I mean, the joke is about kids who can text and they're doing it incessantly. But if you put the same kids in the same room together, they don't know what to say to each other. I know. None, by the way. 
They, they have no idea what to say with real words. Right. You know, out of their mouth. And so it, we're closer by texting and tweeting and all this, but we're further away from each other in terms of emotionality and, and, and heartfelt words than True. ever. Unfortunately. Yeah. And our loved ones, you know, it's, there's so, and when I first got into this, I had so much fear of telling people that I was looking into life after death and looking for proof. And and these are the things I came up with. Bill, I thought people were going to think I was crazy. So I kept my mouth shut. And I think so many people have had experiences and might be afraid to share. Uh, that was the biggest surprise as we did our research. Because people said to us, I had my experience five years, 10 years, 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And you're the first person I've ever told. Or you're the first people we've told outside of my immediate family or friends. You know, you're the third or fourth person. And so many people said that, that I knew our book, if nothing else, would validate their experiences for each other. And by and that's why we chose the format of having 353 first-hand accounts. It's not about Judy and Bill Guggenheim. And I don't care if we have PhDs. You're still not going to re- reach more people than by having the accounts and the experiences own words, first-hand accounts, in other words, that they can read and uh, decide for themselves, are these authentic or not? And that's what we wanted to do, and that's what we did. And books are not usually done this way because there's very little of us in the book, and we're not trying to be the experts that say this means this and that means that, and of course, you know, you must believe such and such. We wanted the readers to read these accounts and make their own objective opinion of what they thought it meant. And uh, I loved, there's one comment, even on Amazon, this guy, I think I believe it was a man, who kept reading a book and then throwing it against the wall. Oh my gosh. With, with disgust, but then started to read it again. And he said he couldn't put it down. Wow, there's such a battle in our minds, even as long as I've been involved with this, you know, little voice in my head sometimes tells me I'm losing my mind. It, none of it happened. You know, I think we all can find, you know, that we fight that negative. But you have to realize what we didn't really elaborate on because we couldn't in our book is what we, what we regard as these types of experiences or near death experiences, things like this as being weird or different or, out there, they're called parapsychological, paranormal, and mm-hmm. other words meaning not real, as far as true science goes. These occur in other parts of the world, such as Central and South America, parts of Europe, the Far East, especially the Philippines, where people have these experiences at night, we'll say, share them with their friends and family members the next day, openly and easily, and they're accepted fully. We're the ones with blinders on. We're the ones that don't accept what the rest of the world does accept. And it's all because our whole society is so scientifically oriented. Uh-huh. It, it, it goes back to, you know, at first the, uh, the sun revolved around the earth, and that was disproven, mm-hmm. and this was disproven, and that was disproven, and science gradually ascended to be the master of the truth. And if science okayed it, it was true. If they didn't okay it, it wasn't true. And now the latest thing is, is consciousness located in the brain or is it outside of the brain? 
um, non-local consciousness. Where does consciousness exist? And things like this. But we're, we're, we, we, we don't realize we all were raised with the same religion. I'm, I'm not saying we're Catholics or Protestants or Jews or whatever. But there's another religion we were raised with from first grade or preschool on right through college and PhDs, and that is science. Science is a way of looking at Earth, life, life on Earth, and evaluating it in a certain way. And it's fine for physical matter. I'm not disputing it, and energy and those things. But it's no good for these areas. Right. And But yet we attribute it as being infallible and having the last word on everything. And so we're the ones who are starving and fearful about death. There's, I hear from uh, we saw many hospice people how many people die hanging on to life with their fingernails because of their religion and science. They're afraid that, that they're going to go to hell or to oblivion, one or the other. <laughs> you know, take your choice. That's and a scary way other, to take yeah, your final and breaths. Yes. It, it is. It's how, and, and they look at and they act it and they speak it if they can speak. And that's the way they leave this planet, leave this life. And uh, they don't have to. That's the between science and some forms of religious belief, that's what they're left with. But other people have a, typically though, let me give you the positive. Mm-hmm. The positive is that many people, even if they've been in a coma, well, for a few moments before they make their transition, they open their eyes, they sit up, they're smiling, they will sometimes mention or point or indicate that their deceased loved one or one or more loved ones are present and have a big, big smile and uh, in, in a way, say, I'll be with you in a moment. And then they take their last breath, and they're gone. But they have a whole welcoming committee waiting for them and escorting them to the light. That's awesome. That really is. I wonder how many people have these ADCs, and they blow it off like it was just my imagination. Uh, that I don't know. But uh, I know it was more, much more prevalent than it is now. Yeah. Fortunately, because our... our a lot has happened since uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross did her research and the books on near-death experiences mm-hmm. and our book, Hello from Heaven, and all the other books on after-death communication. And as I said earlier, and some on um, out-of-body experiences and the number of celebrities that have come forward yes, and shared their experiences in popular media. All these are chipping away at this really agnostic or atheistic viewpoint that there there ain't no more. <laughs> and there <laughs> more sure that. is. How many people would you say have these experiences? More people than not, or do you have any idea? Uh, the, yes, there was a poll conducted um, that indicated, before we ever began our work, and indicated that it was around 43 44% of all Americans have had one an after-death communication experience. Now, that's if you include all the population of now over 300 million, you're speaking of about 125 million people, about a third. I'm going to say a third, conservatively, have had one, a third of the population. But then take into account, many people have never been bereaved, certainly, like young children. Yes. And uh, you know, older, some older, many older people. They've never been that close to somebody who's died. Maybe it was a grandparent, but they just weren't that close to that grandparent or whoever. So they haven't dealt with this. They haven't uh, had 
or if they had somebody had come back, they wouldn't have recognized him or they would have blown it off very, very easily. Wow. And this guy just discounted it. And that's sad, but uh, it's the way it is. Oh, it is. It definitely is. Can we, because I know I've spoken to people and they've heard stories of other people that get these communications. Is there something people can do to increase their chances? I mean, I know you said to be open. And I, I do think having a quiet mind and, like you said, asking for a communication is important. But is there anything we can do or pay attention to differently to help have one? What, what I say is, first of all, ask. Asking is a form of prayer, if you like that word or not. Mm-hmm. But asking is for a form of being open. You're admitting you there's something you more you would like. So ask the person we'd like to hear from to come back to you in okay. some form. So just plain be, ask, but with, with sincerity, not just off the top of your head. Okay, prove it to me. <laughs> no, it's been, but the cynical bias. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you, you, I hear this going to happen now. You prove it to me and maybe I'll, maybe, maybe, maybe I'll consider it. No, no, that's not asking. I mean, asking with a sincere, open, loving heart. And maybe they want to give a message to somebody else and offer to be of service to them, to give the message to maybe their spouse or another child or whoever it may be. And, but asking is a form of being open and it's a form of prayer and uh, it creates an openness in your mind, in your emotions, in your in the pos- in the possible. What is possible? Because that's what we're talking about. What is possible? Mm-hmm. And uh, it's amazing, as they say, there are no um, atheists in foxholes. Well, <laughs> here nobody has to be an atheist or agnostic. Just you don't have to tell anybody if it doesn't happen, or even if it does happen. You don't have to tell anybody. Mm-hmm. Let's see what happens. Now, the other thing is, which is very positive, yes, learn how to meditate. But that takes time, uh, a lot of time and devotion to that. And we're. And the third thing is, my son, Chris, and I are working on a course, which we haven't finished, but we're going to put on the Internet in some way. That will be either very inexpensive or maybe free. I don't know which, but we it'll be really learning how to go deeper and deeper and deeper into uh, other levels of reality, so to speak. Uh, same as meditation. It's a course of meditation, but we're not calling it that. Okay. The, the, AD, the ADC course. And uh, we've got we're all based upon guided imagery exercises. And we've already held it uh, in person, but we did that just to see how we did uh, mm-hmm. for our own feedback. And it went very well. We, we had... Uh, about 25 people in the first course and over 55 in the second one. And a lot of people had some kind of experience during the, during the day. But we're not trying to do this, uh, we're not trying to do this as an, uh, pres- uh, in-person presentation, but rather just people could listen on the internet with their phones. And you can get to many more people than if you were trying to get to people one on one in the group setting. Right. It, it, and it's very, very draining and tiring and, and whatnot to do a full day presentation and you're renting hotel rooms oh, and you have to be concerned about so many things. There were, there were moving tables and stuff at one point. Yeah. Ridiculous stuff. But what I like anyway. about anyway, this world. So, so we're doing that and we, we want it to be as accessible as possible. And, uh, 
that's what we're working on. And uh, we just we we we're, we took a digression. We're working right now in the other room. My son is recording uh, the basis of a guided imagery for forgiveness. And this is going to be a very powerful, very short little uh, exercise. And it's from the book of uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. It's right in there, and we're using that. Excellent. And uh, it's got nothing to do with us, and it's got nothing to do with money or fame or anything. I just want to, I came across it, and I just want to have people who use it, because it's it's not only effective, but miracles occur when people forgive one another. Yes. Literally. And there's a beautiful exercise that when you forgive someone, you release a prisoner and you find out you were the one who was in prison yourself. It's not about forgiving, releasing the other person, releasing yourself. It's a self form of self healing. Forgiveness is self healing is what I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. I heard someone say once holding resentment or not forgiving. It's like taking rat poison yourself, but waiting for the other person to die. You know, you just, yes. it, 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 it eats you up inside. Yes, yes, yes. You know, oh, I love it. And I, exactly. I'm a firm believer, Bill, that in our job on as being humans is to serve one another and make a difference for one another. So that's awesome. Yes. Like, I'm looking forward to that. What I'm really excited about your work, your and Judy's work, is um, that th- these ADCs are th- things we can do. I've spoken to tons of people on the show that are mediums, and then I get lots of reader or listeners that you know want to get in touch with their loved one, and they feel like they must go through a medium. And as great as mediums are, I think they are, but to realize that your loved one could be sitting in the chair or on the couch right next to you right now, just invisible to you, but they're willing to come through, you know, so you don't necessarily yes. need to go to an outside source. Yeah. Plus, uh, if you do it yourself, you can have ongoing communication. And some people have written whole books this way. They, I'm sure you're familiar with the, uh, uh, and uh, I just went blank on her name. That's okay. The, the, the Billy Finger, the Billy Fingers book. Yes. Um, Afterlife of Billy Fingers. That, yeah. The Afterlife De- of Billy Fingers. That, yeah. that came because of her ongoing communication with her deceased brother. And other books have been written by uh, women uh, with their deceased husband, mm-hmm. things of that nature, and or their child, and, or I should say, and their child, and, and on and on and on. So people can have ongoing communication. But matter of fact, in our book, we uh, we encountered somebody um, who uh, had ongoing communication with his deceased wife. But the, in a way, the, the, the most startling one, you asked me about what I heard that I remember. I remember walking into a bookstore here in Orlando and uh, just on the way in I happened to meet a woman we began talking and she said yes he has ongoing communication with her deceased husband and when he was uh, and she was young I mean she was like 30s or so and she um, said that uh, even though he has died they talk daily because they had a business together and he advises her on a daily basis of what to do to continue making the business a success. Wow. So you wouldn't have that for a practical level of communication. Yeah. Uh, a sensitive question here. I, I know your daughter, you had lost your daughter in 2011. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit yes. about that? Because now you're on the side of okay. being the grieving parent. Okay. Well, my daughter, uh, Janet, uh, she was born in 1963. And right from the time she was a little girl, we knew she was very different. Uh, 
very artistic and all those things, but emotionally, uh, her life was like a yo-yo, up, down, up, down, up and down and sideways, and you couldn't predict what would come next, and she lived her life that way. And unfortunately, in the late teens, she did get into uh, drugs, uh, cocaine, and that took uh, well over a year, over a couple of years to get through. And uh, I believe she was bipolar, although it wasn't ever officially recorded, and I didn't know enough to come forward and say it, but I think she was basically bipolar. And by the way, very, very high percentage of alcoholics are bipolar. Hmm. And it's a way, a way of using alcohol to gentle out the mood swings. If you're really nervous and can't sleep and edgy and whatnot, you have a glass of wine or a beer, and that enables you to relax. Yes. And if you're, you know, bouncing off the ceiling on the upside and whatnot, you can drink something to bring you down. So, so same thing with these drugs. Anyway, she uh, had a difficult life emotionally, and but she could paint, she could write, she could do theoretical mathematics, and did. Uh, she did ballet, and when she died, she was making a full-length feature film on her own. Wow. And before I go any further, I want to say her mother created a beautiful website to her, and it's called Janet, J-A-E-N-E-T. That's her name, Janet with an E in the middle. Okay. J-A-E-N-E-T dot net. Okay. Dot net. And her books are on there, and the mother... Uh, range it so everybody can read the books in full. You don't have to buy anything. It's all there. And you'll learn more about her. But uh, but basically what happened was she met some man <laughs> and uh, who convinced her she didn't need the medications she was taking. And she was on a lot of them. And so she went cold turkey oh. and went off everything at once. And she did tell her older sister that she thought she might resume taking them because it wasn't working for her. Then I don't know what happened. There was a gap of a few days. She went into a Walmart store in Santa Fe, New Mexico, bought a handgun, walked out with it, because it was a waiting period in many states, and used it on herself within two hours. Mm. So I, I can only assume from what I've learned about suicide is that you feel that you're embarking on going into a downward spiral. Imagine this, a downward spiral, darker and darker, deeper and deeper blacker and blacker, more and more isolated and alone. And no moment in your future life will be better than this. It will always be this way or worse as you continue this long, slow, downward spiral into emptiness. And I think that's the key word, emptiness. Uh, and it's, it's just, it, you speak about clinical depression. This is clinical depression at its worst. Sure. But it is without treatment, the situational depression, which we've all experienced because something has happened, you know, a breakup of a marriage, a right. loss of a job, a health issue, whatever. But clinical depression is a whole different thing, and that's what she had there. And But the good news is, not right away, but shortly thereafter, I heard from her, and she was much better. And over the period of time now, that was 19... I mean, 2011, she took her life, and I've seen her once in in a vision and spoken with her a number of times, and we communicate by telepathy. Sometimes I write it down, sometimes I don't, but I've received a lot of messages from her, and she's much happier, and she's together. She's working with children there. Call it heaven, call it the afterlife. I don't care what you call it. 
same mm-hmm. place. And she's much happier there than she ever was here. And I'm happy for her. And uh, I can just feel her Her essence is, how could I put it, it's so much lighter and more joyful than she was here overall. Yes, she was that way here sometimes too, but other times it was just it was very hard to even speak with her. Mm. Very difficult. She was just half depressed and sure. upset and everything. When you've seen her, Bill, is it like you've seen her in the past or does she look fresh and alive in your visions? I saw her, this okay, an ADC vision, and that's a category, one of the 12 categories. Mm-hmm. You generally see them sort of like in, right in front of your third eye, as they call it, between your eyebrows and your and your forehead. <coughs> so I didn't see her with my object, objective eyes, like right. standing three feet away from me, as I would see you or you would see me, but right in front of me. And um, she was in full color. She was ter- she was uh, slowly turning her body, and then she was at the same time her whole body was going in a circle, twirling, twirling. And she was just showing me how happy she was by this m- m- mode of dance. And she looked radiant, full color. And uh, the song I used to associate with her was playing. The song was the Beatles song, Here Comes the Sun. Yes. And, when, and it was my song with her. I have different songs with different people. But whenever I heard that song, I thought of sending her sunshine, that she was sad, depressed, whatever. But then what I learned by people who had written and posted messages on her website, and that she, for many other people, was their sunshine. She provided them with energy and creativity and encouragement. So it's all relative. Kate, mm. can songs be a form of after-death communication? If- yes, uh, certainly. certainly uh, but we have many accounts of a particular song coming on at a particular moment. Uh, it could be an anniversary date or a birthday or whatever. It could be that uh, station you never listen to on a radio. We'll say, uh, you know, maybe your single last thing in the world is country western, but all of a sudden it's on the country western uh, channel, and that's what you hear, and that's the song. And uh, it usually totally surprises people uh, when they hear it and where they hear it. Yes, definitely. Anything, anything can be. Uh, there are two categories. One of physical phenomena, another one of symbolic experiences. And these kind of blur, but it, the, um, it's hard to, put, to describe them in words, but under physical phenomena, people who are bereaved often receive a wide range of signs such as lights or lamps blinking on and off, mm-hmm. lights, radios, TVs, stereos, and other mechanical objects being turned on, photographs, pictures, and various other items being turned over or moved from one moved from one place to another. And I wrote, and the long list of things that go up in the night. It's so huge, so numerous, that you, it, it's those things you can't account for, but they occur. It could be a toy that begins operating, even though the batteries aren't in. Uh, the battery-operated toy, little car or something. It could be uh, music, uh, one that's in the book. It's a music box that operates that hasn't even been opened for years. Things like that. Mm. It, it, these are just physical phenomena. But and then uh, right now, the biggest thing in this field are what are known as signs. And so people know to ask a higher power or universe or see a loved one for a sign or not. You may not. 
And uh, it's just something that occurs. And the most common ones involve rainbows and butterflies and then many uh, different species of birds and other animals and things involving flowers or finding coins or feathers or pictures or whatever. But let's say with the birds, it, it's not just seeing a bird. It's having a bird come and land next to you or even on your finger right. in some cases. It's not just having a butterfly being there and you're in a butterfly garden and having one land on you, indoor garden, but rather being outside and one comes to you or you go outside, you see a whole swarm of them for a moment. It may not be a species you've ever seen before. And then it just is there for so many seconds and then dissipates. Or it may lead you, uh, a butterfly may sort of dance in front of you if you're out walking in the woods or someplace or a park and lead you to a very special place. So again, it's the behavior of the animal. And we have other ones in the book that involve uh, deer, porpoises, and other animals. Mm. Well, Love it. One of the readers and- of my book, oh, sorry to interrupt, I tend to do that, uh, but he wrote to me and he said after his wife's funeral, a young wife who had passed away from cancer, uh, he walked outside the church and it had not been raining and there was a full rainbow outside and then after Mm -hmm. that he says you know i just so miss you i miss calling you and just saying hi you know and uh he went out for a walk and he just happened to look up in the sky and there were no clouds in the sky except for clouds that spelt out hi h-i with a little dot and he took a picture of it and sent it to me you know you got to believe that these signs are signs and they're real yes Mm -hmm. well you see (laughs) These things are all around us, but we've been term- trained not to see them almost. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but they're there. Yes, yeah, they are there. Yeah. We, but we have this wonderful word, coincidence. Coincidence, mm-hmm. coincidence. And the skeptics use that constantly. Uh, coincidink. <laughs> <laughs> but there are, there are no coincidences. Oh, it's just beautiful. It's purposeful. Yeah. It's purposeful. Bill, time's going by quick. What haven't I asked you, or what should we talk about before uh, we Well, I'd this? like to... Uh, one thing we didn't touch are uh-huh. what are the most common messages that people receive. Oh, okay. And uh, the most common ones, and now these can be uh, said verbally or just implied because of the experience. But they're letting us know. This is a deceased loved one saying to us, I'm okay. I'm fine. Everything is okay. Don't worry about me. Don't grieve for me. I'm happy. Mm-hmm. Everything will be all right. Go on with your life. Because there's two parts of grief. One is our concern for the one who died. Yes. Do they still exist? How are they? And the other is for ourselves. Sure. There's a, I, I call it the death of a loved one a spiritual or emotional, an emotional amputation. It's like losing a limb, yes. an arm, a leg, or whatever, with a spouse or a child, and on and on. Um, sometimes they'll say, Please let me go if we're clinging too hard, and some people do. Please forgive. I ask us to forgive somebody. There's a beautiful one of that in the back of the book. By the way, we have one chapter of long accounts, and those are especially riveting and uh, meaningful to read. Okay. I'll say thank you. I'll always be there for you. I'm watching over you. That's sort of a you know, guardian angel kind of message. Mm-hmm. I'll see you. I'll see you again. I love you. And so I regard all of these are messages of love. Yes. And uh, most of these are 
when you have an ADC, they reduce the intensity of the experiencer's grief and they shorten the duration of their bereavement. So, and then as I say, there are six chapters of why are these real. We don't have time, I guess, to go through them all, but uh, when you read those, I think even the more cynical people uh, will be impressed by what they read and how these affected the lives of the people who had these experiences because we have a whole chapter of people whose lives were protected or saved uh, by an ADC and another chapter of people who were suicidal and did not take their life because someone came at just the right moment. Wow. Not by what they said, but just why one they were there, they uh, caring was demonstrated and they did not go on to Two were in the act of taking your life, by the way. Really? At the moment. Yes. So what we say is that uh, ADCs are a natural and normal part of life, and yes. they deserve the same uh, awareness that near-death experiences, near experiences have received. And that uh, basically is that they pro- ADCs after death communications provide modern-day evidence for life after death, and they confirm that what that what death is it simply that our body dies, but we make a transition to a spiritual realm and we'll encounter our deceased relatives and friends. And that most of all, that after death communications affirm that, uh, of the one very spiritual message that life and love are eternal. That's beautiful. And that's the way, those are the final words of our book, life and love are eternal. Cause that's what I learned from it. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things you had sent in your information you sent me before the uh, information, there was a song that I heard on spiritlyric.com uh, yes. that I'm going to share with everyone. But can you tell a little bit about that song? It is so beautiful, and I think people find it so comforting. Uh, <laughs> it is, and I used to have copies available to give out or sell for $5, mm-hmm. things like that. But because of a... I don't know how to say it easily. A, a dispute she had with a union. She can't sell more than five or ten thousand copies or something. Wow. But she can't sell it. But people can listen to it as much as they want on the internet. Yeah. And uh, until we're together again, it came through her. And she, this is a woman who doesn't play music. She can't sing. She's a musical as I am, which means zero, not at all. And she lives in the same town I do, Longwood. Florida. Imagine and that. She, did, she had never heard of me. She was trying to get this song to the medium John Edward, mm-hmm. but uh, and she did. But he didn't. She was. She was hoping he would use it for his workshops. But he, for whatever reason, it, that didn't happen. But it, it deserves to be played, and I want it recorded by children, and I want to have it recorded in all different languages. But sure. it just hasn't happened yet, and she's very busy. The young woman. Who has a very demanding job and she's earning a living and blah 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 the material stuff. Mm, I know and all I about that. Yes, I, I can't. I can't get her quite pull her, even though I paid, offered her to pay for everything and do it. I can't quite pull her in the direction I'd like to make this possible because it's such a lovely song, and it's the only song I know of that's an after death communication in itself because it's from the one who died. Yes, almost all all the other songs are to the one who died. Or about the one who died. Right. This is from that person. Incredible. So it's yeah, you, you you have the correct website. Spiritlyric.com. Yeah. Or yeah. 
Anyone who's listening right now, if you go to wedontdieradio.com and click on episode 143, that's this episode with Bill Guggenheim, and I'll have um, a link to his books, his website, this song, uh, his daughter's website, everything we're talking about. Yeah, uh, it, it plays on our website if you push the right button someplace. And your website is afterdeath.com? Yes, but yeah, after a, hyphen hyphen death. After hyphen death dot com. <laughs> right. Right. Excellent. Without the without the hyphen you don't get there. <laughs> you don't get there. You don't get there. Well that's no. why I like if people But you see after death dot com is after after death the way we spell it in the book is hyphenated, just like near death experiences are hyphenated. Mm-hmm. And the com is meant to be communications. So after death communications. Oh so it's just our our way of being playful. It's a good way of being playful. I'm excited, yeah, yeah. I'm re- and I'm thrilled to have spoken with you, and I um, want to reread your book, because it's been a number of years. But it's so true that when you start hearing stories of what other people have experienced, and then you have the courage to even share your own experiences, people looking around, you know, that are around you in your life, you might think they're not into this stuff, but like I've found out, more people are than aren't. More people have had something happen than haven't. I'm not bragging. It's not about me. Okay. This book has never been about me because I, if, I, if it was, I, I did let that go years ago. But uh, it's been many years now since it came out. 1995, we self-published it. 96, we uh, Bantam bought it. Mm-hmm. And so for uh, 21 years now, it's been on Amazon and it's still selling well. Yes, it is. And, uh, I've heard people say, I've bought a dozen, I've bought two dozen, I've bought even higher numbers. I'm not trying to impress anybody. I'm just saying many people have given this book at, at times of bereavement. as They're wanting to give something, and this is what they've given mm-hmm. because they know it, it helped them when they received it, and they want to help somebody else in the same way. Yeah. So I'm very pleased with that. Yes. Yeah. It's a very easy. See, we wrote it in a very easy way. It's not a Ph.D. book. It's a book anybody can read with any level of a you know, background. Yeah, you and they're short to... stories, 353 yeah. first-hand accounts all right. in one book. I mean, you can just pick up right. and read one, read a couple. The thing, Bill, that yeah. I really want to acknowledge you for, you and Judy both, is I know what grief feels like from the loss of my grandparent, my father, even some very close pets. I've not lost a child or a significant other, and I can assume the pain is severe. But to do anything that can help alleviate pain, give hope, um, stop suicide. So many people that are experiencing grief, um, you know, that at their wits end and actually feel like the best way out is to end their own life. You'll never hear all the stories of the impact your words and putting this book together has made in people's lives or the workshops that you've given. But I just want to thank you, really thank you, um, for doing all that you've done for mankind and that this book will go on long after you're walking the planet and it will continue to. So thank you. Thank you very much, Sheila. You're welcome. You're welcome. So just... 
Yes, just to conclude this episode, I want to uh, thank you, Bill, for being here. I want to thank you, our listener, for spending this last hour with us. I really appreciate you taking the time, and I know your life is invested in this. Uh, and so I, I always want to give tools to make you or help you have a better life and give you hope. I want to encourage you to go to our website, which is wedontdieradio.com. Click on past episodes. You can join the Insiders Club, get a free copy of How to Survive Grief, a very healing audio I have. I want to remind you, September 15th through 17th, I'd love to meet you at that big symposium out in Scottsdale. And you can go to afterlifestudies.org. So in closing, my name is Sandra Champlain. I've been your host on We Don't Die Radio. And I do believe that life is an education for the soul and that your life here on earth is important. And what Bill said earlier really struck me, uh, words from our loved ones, I'll see you again and I love you. So know you are very, very loved. You are not alone. And I want to thank you for listening, and we'll see you soon.